0: From the entertainment capital of the world. I'm Christopher Calloway and this is Creator Talks. My guest is writer and film director Don Glute. Don began as an amateur filmmaker. In fact, he made the amateur Spider-Man film in 1969. And he also began writing stories for those black-and-white horror magazines Creepy, Eerie, and Vampirella. Later, he went on to do comics for Marvel, including Call the Destroyer, Captain America, the Invaders, and What If Comics. Don also did work for DC, and he did work for Gold Key Comics, and one of my favorite that he worked on was Dr. Spectre. Don is also a huge fan of Frankenstein. He produced a mid-budget horror film based on Frankenstein for the 200th anniversary of the book by Mary Shelley. The film is called Tales of Frankenstein, which contains four stories about Frankenstein's descendants. There is also a graphic novel based on that movie, and the movie's stories came from two books that Don wrote about Frankenstein. During our discussion, I found out that Don worked with some major film actors who were in horror films, universal horror films, and they appeared in his own amateur movies. And there were other actors who appeared in such films as Dark Shadows and are members of legendary acting families that appear in his Tales of Frankenstein film. Don had a lot of great stories to share about working in comics, writing, and directing films. Then we kick back with the creator to learn more about Don as a person. So this is a giant-sized interview, which will be accompanied by a YouTube video on my YouTube channel, Creator Talks, with photos and illustrations of the work that he's talking about. So let's begin my conversation with writer-director Don Glute, in person on the Las Vegas Strip, here now on Creator Talks. One of your great loves, Frankenstein Monster. Like, that is the monster for you.
1: I've been uh, a Frankenstein fan since probably uh, I was five or six years old. Uh, I was in a, my mother and I and my grandmother were at a movie theater in Chicago called The Music Box, which is where I had a premiere of one of my movies some years ago, but that's another story. But I was about, I don't know, just a kid. And it was a Boris Karloff, it was a Western kind of, it was a movie called Tap Roots, where he played a Native American, okay? And my mother said, that's the actor who played Frankenstein. I'd never heard that word before. Mm-hmm. And then uh, on the way home, we walked to the theater, on the way home, back home, I said, who's, who's Frankenstein? And she said, well, it was a man that was brought, a dead man that was brought back to life. And that just resonated with me. And then over the years, I, I learned more and more about who the, the character was, and I finally saw some of the movies, and it's just been a, a major love for
0: me uh, ever since then. What was your favorite Frankenstein movie? Which one captured it the best? Was it the first one, Bride? What, what do you think? Well,
1: you know, I, I used to say Bride, but now I'm, I'm taking like maybe the first three collectively: um, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, and Son, Son. of Frankenstein. But I also love all the others, the, the B movies that were made in the 40s, you know, for different reasons. They were fun. And the first movies I ever saw, Frankenstein movies I ever saw in the theater, were House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula. So they had a huge impact on me, and they affected my storytelling up to this day. And um, I mean, they were, I think, more made for kids and adults, like the first three were, but they just had... That whole atmosphere the with the villagers and all that, the, the mist and the smoke and the castles and all that coming together uh, just profoundly um, affected me. That was like an epiphany for me, seeing those two movies.
0: They're great movies, and I remember looking for those on television before we had DVRs and VCRs and I'd have to look the TV guide for those. When are they going to be on? And eventually when they started coming on VHS tape, I went to the VHS store and bought all of those universal horror films, all the Frankenstein ones. And I I love those things. And a lot of people had played Frankenstein. Of course, Boris Karloff being one of the first and best for universal. And then we had Lon Chaney Jr. Bella Gosey even played, and then Glenn Strange played in The House of Frankenstein, yeah. House of Dracula, and you actually had Glenn in one of your films later. Yeah, I
1: made an amateur movie called The Adventures of the Spirit with Bob Burns, and um, I <laughs> talked Glenn Strange. You know, I didn't really talk him into it. I just asked him if he would do it, and he said he would, and that was a big thrill for me. And uh, there was one scene where he strangles me, and his hands were so big, they almost... You know, wrapped around my entire neck, you know, with the, with the fingertips meeting on the other side. He was a great guy though, he really was. But you know, I saw all of them except the Karlovs, the three Karlovs, in theaters when they were re- re-released by Real Art. Okay. So, uh, But in those days, what was fun actually, before Famous Monsters of Film Land and all these magazines, we didn't, my friends and I that went to see these movies, we didn't know what order they came in, when, when they were made. Um, I didn't know who Glenn Strange was and, until later, and we, were try, we would try to figure out what the sequence was by the ending of one and the beginning of the other, and, um, and that was fun. You know, it, uh, it, was, it was like a project, and we finally figured it out
0: that's part of my love of those movies is that they all kind of have some connection together maybe yeah. not always very smooth but they are part of a collection and i'm always so into anything like that that's a series be it be a television long-running series or films i love that and one of the films i liked one of the best universal monster movies ever i think and definitely the best avon costello was evan costello me right? oh yeah I, yeah I mean i love it my kids love it i mentioned it all the time on the show And Glenn Strange was the Frankenstein monster in that movie.
1: Yeah, and there's only one real problem with that movie today. You know, I talk to, because I'm in the film business, I talk to a lot of actors. And I I do sometimes seminar speeches, you know, telling actors how to get work and how to network, all this sort of thing. And um, almost nobody knows who Abbott Costello is anymore. So it's like, who meets Frankenstein? They know who Frankenstein is. But uh, they don't know who Laurel and Hardy is. They don't know who James Stewart is. They don't know who Stanley Kubrick is. These are supposed to be working actors, you know. They don't know who Humphrey Bogart is. Clark Abel, they don't know who is. But um, uh, so that's I think the only problem might be the title, because eventually nobody's going to remember who
0: who they are. I mean, the film buffs do, but just the guy, the people on the street it's sad because in school we have to learn about history world history american history it's part of the curriculum and i think especially for actors they should know about these great actors and great films and i mean you can't just say well that was before my time so i don't really know that i think it's important to know i mean i really love going back and watching those old movies oh so don't I- it drives my wife crazy because she's my a little younger than me so she doesn't know a lot of this stuff and I'll be making reference to things that she doesn't get. Her parents find them funny, but she doesn't understand it. But I like, no, this is a great movie. Like I'm watching this movie and the guy says, we don't need no stinking badges. And I said, I saw that in Blazing Saddles, but now I'm watching it in Sierra Madre or whatever it was. And I'm like, That's, yeah. and I'm like my mind's blown. because I just love seeing those connections and going back to the source, you know? Yeah, not going into any details that might get me into legal trouble.
1: I was doing a deposition once and uh, they had a video of me Talking about what we were, what the case was about, and in the in the um, deposition on the video, I said I'm shocked, shocked. He said, the lawyer said, "What do you mean by what do you mean by that? What were you what were you talking about?" And I said, "Well, I was doing Claude Rains from, Casablanca, and you know when he comes in there and he sees gambling going on." Yes. And he looked at me like he was just stunned. <laughs> he didn't know what you meant. <laughs> he wasn't ready
0: for an answer like that. Oh. You know? <laughs> Why do you think? Frankenstein, Frankenstein's monster has endured for 200 years. Why is it still? I mean, because today now it's like, oh, you can blow something up with a bomb. You can shoot with a machine gun. So it's just a monster, not like a, the bigger threats we have today since the atomic age. But why is that still something that people, fans of horror, still love so much? Well, the book, which is
1: last year had its 200th anniversary of the first printing, um, first publication, that's never been out of print ever it 's been I mean there's multiple editions of it out all the time and um, you know it's a hard book to read now because it's written in a very old-fashioned style but if you there's some real basic truths in that book a, a father and son relationship uh, when Victor rejects his basically his son and um, that's a very powerful thing. Uh, so you know most people have never read the book. They're just familiar with the movies, but then the movies and the plays and the comic books and everything. There's something appealing about that. The way that he's interpreted now with the Jack Pierce makeup and there's something really compelling about that. And I don't know exactly what it is. And a lot of a lot of it had to do with originally with Boris Karloff's performance. But even now, you make a Frankenstein movie, people respond to it, and they and they always. They always say people identify with a monster, um, you know, because when they're teenagers, they go through an awkward period and, you know, they're clumsy and all this. And people reject them and all this. I was interviewed by the BBC some years ago. They were doing a special on Frankenstein. And um, they wanted me to articulate about why I identified with the monster. Like everybody else. And I was thinking and I was fishing and I was coming up with all the stock answers that everybody gives, all the cliche answers. And I said, Wait a minute, I don't know if I ever identified with the monster. I identified with Victor because he actually did things. He actually created things. You know, I that's my whole life is based on creating things, you know, stories and music and whatever. And um, that wasn't the answer they wanted me to give, but that was the answer I gave them. And I, I think that's true. I think I identified
0: with Victor Frankenstein more than a monster. I see that in your movies because that is the central character is the creator, the either Frankenstein or his, one of his descendants. So let's let's talk about some of your Frankenstein films. Uh, well, I
1: only made one professionally, and that was the new one, Tales of Frankenstein, that came out just at the end of uh, just for Halloween uh, 2018. What I wanted that film to do was come out on the end of the 200th anniversary. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. First, I mean, you know, the, the commercial reason, because I figured there was going to be a lot of Frankenstein things coming out of, of books, books and who, who knows what to capitalize on that. And, um, and I could use that in selling the movie. And the other thing was, uh, I just, it was like a tribute to Mary Shelley's book, you know, and I wanted to be part of that uh, celebration. And uh, that's why it came out in 2018. And the Blu-ray just came out October 1st of 2019. Right, right. And the DVD came out right before Halloween, which is another me thinking commercial terms. Good timing. Because everybody wants horror films for Halloween. And if they miss that, they're,
0: they make nice stocking stuffers for Christmas. And if people haven't heard of it, well, it's a modest budget horror, almost comedy horror film. And I love that so much because today there is, and I love this too, in a way, the CGI and everything they use in movies for the superhero movies. It's great because they can do things they couldn't do before. But when it comes to horror, I just don't want a whole bunch of CGI. I just want a good story that really pulls me in and good character. I love the Universal movies and I love the Hammer films. And I wanted to do
1: do something old school, something like that. I wanted to have. Things that you should have in a Frankenstein movie, like vill- villages with torches and brain transplants and, um, you know, uh, w- weird scientists and that sort of thing, and and that's what I did. But I did it. I wanted to have practical effects, practical makeup effects. I didn't want to put a lot of well, it's, it's expensive. Anybody have CGI? Yeah. And I don't particularly like CGI. It's to me, it's it's taken over the movies. You know, you look at one of these Marvel movies there's DC superhero movies, and the whole last act, is nothing but s- CGI effects. was like a cartoon, you know, a high-tech cartoon. And I wanted to do something more traditional with real actors, um, real makeups, and uh, real stories. You know, there's uh, four stories in there, and I couldn't, I couldn't make them longer than they were. They were longer. Originally, we had to cut them down because the movie was going to run too long. Um, I wanted them to be real stories, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and uh, not just a lot of pizzazz, you know. And these four stories
0: took place at different times. The progressively Yeah, closer to the yeah. Each current. story
1: takes place in a different country in a different time period, which presented some challenges because we had to have all the right clothes and the right. The one that set in the 40s, we had to have the right telephone, we had to have the right car, we had, we, you know. Um, um, even the lightning, <laughs> I wanted to get that stock lightning shot you see in all those old movies, including Bride of Frankenstein, and it took me a while to find it, but I got it, and I wanted to make sure all the sound effects were like from 1940s radio shows. We got all those, and if the detective in that episode made a reference to a Frankenstein movie, it had to be the Abbott and Costello one because, the, because the, the segment took place in 1948. And when he mentions the Three Stooges, it's got to be shampoo, shampoo, right. shampoo, you know. All those That's little right. things have to be uh,
0: right. And um, I was very, very fussy about that. I just watched that this week, and I rented it. And my son wanted to see it. And my wife's like, you got to go to bed. You know, we're strict about that. But I was like, yeah, he's watching the movie. Come on. And <laughs> so the next day, he's like, can we watch it? I'm like, I rented it. I'll get it again. Or maybe I'll have to get the Blu-ray now. But he likes that kind of stuff. He loves that.
1: I didn't want to make a like so many horror films are today, I didn't want to make a horror film that left you with a bad taste in your mouth, that they got you depressed, and that, mm. that made you sick. You know, I wanted it to be a fun monster movie, the kind we grew up on, pretty mm. much. I mean, there's, you know, it's got color and it's got, you know, some uh, updates of, you know, style or whatever. But but each one was done in the style of that a certain era. Most people don't realize it, but the second story, the one with the crawling hand, is my homage to Roger Corman's Edgar Allan Poe movies, and almost nobody picks up on that. It's got the dream sequences, and the even the character's named Vincent, you know, the alchemist in that, uh, his wife's name is Lenore, and there's cutaways the black cats and the ravens, there's a burial alive sequence and a telltale, arc. nobody mm-hmm. picks up on that for some reason, or or, or they don't mention it. Um, but anyway, I, I tried to be very consistent. And the first one, and the last one, more. the first one was,
0: they were both kind of like combinations of Universal and Hammer films. Mm-hmm. Tell me about some of the actors in that film, because there are some connections with horror actors like John Blythe Barrymore from The Barrymore Family. It's a low-budget B-movie, let's face it. That's what it is. But I didn't want it to look like one. And, and
1: one problem with B-movies, low-budget movies, everybody uses the same the actors, the same scream queens, the same, you know, out of work, you know, male actors that haven't worked in a long time but didn't get them cheap. And that puts a stigma on your movie right away. When you go to the American film market or some way to sell it and they see all these people that do all these kinds of movies over and over again, that can kill your movie. So I wanted to make sure I'd use none of them. And uh, so I, John Blythe Barrymore, and what a great guy he was to work with. You know, he never even, he had the, the script on his cell phone. He never even <laughs> printed it out. And he said, what scene are we doing now? And I said, oh, we're doing, you know, whatever. And, and he would look at the cell phone, and he would nail it. He would get every single word. And then um, he did scenes with Jerry Lacey from Dark Shadows and played again, Sam. The two of those guys working together, it was like magic. And um, we even left some of Jerry's cuts uh, a little bit longer because he would do something, you know, with his eyes or his eye, and it, it was it was just wonderful to see that. Then we have Ann Robinson, who was in um, uh, War of the Worlds, the original War of the Worlds, and a lot of other movies. We have Beverly Washburn, who lives right here in Las Vegas, um, who did who started her. doing things like superman and the mole man back in 1951 but she was in spider baby the lone ranger old yeller i mean she has an incredible resume a star trek um we have tj storm who uh besides being a a great actor and a wonderful person to have on set was godzilla in the in the, the the last two godzilla movies he was the motion capture guy doing all of godzilla stuff he was um uh, and the Deadpool movies, the the X Man, uh, the guy. who... Oh, Colossus. Yes, that mm-hmm. was, that was him. Okay. And uh, Mel Novak, who's done all, who did all those Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris um, martial arts movies. He did a movie with Christopher Lee. Um, what was that? Uh, it was a Chuck Norris movie, and Christopher Lee was the villain in it. And, and I think he was like Mel was like a henchman. So I have some really good actors in this. But Some of them you probably wouldn't be familiar with, but those would be some of the name actors, and I was very careful, and the people that didn't have like a long resume, we brought them in for some, you know, uh, to audition, Okay. and um, some of the auditions weren't easy, but they had to look like, you know, one thing when I cast a movie, the actor has to look like the character, and um you know, I see too many movies uh, and too many plays where the actor just bears no resemblance to the character they're playing, at least in my mind, you know, a guy playing a leading man and he looks like Woody Allen, you know, it, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. And, um, hard or, to sell it that yeah, way. Yeah, or the young, the actress playing the young, the young babe is, you know, like 45 years old and much, you know, very overweight, it doesn't work, you got to look like the character and... Um, and luckily, it was a. It was I had wonderful actors who per who were wonderful to deal with. They had great, you know, attitudes and personalities. And there were no prima donnas on this movie. And you even had
0: a comic book writer creator in the film as well.
1: Oh yeah, that was sad. Len Wein,
0: yeah.
1: who uh, went through a lot of grief, you know, because he had he yet he was Len has never been in good health. He was he had serious health problems since he was a kid. He never told anybody, he was, he was this really outgoing kind of guy and every, everybody loved Len. And um, he was going through a lot of pain. And I said, Len, are you sure you want to do this movie? And he said, yeah, I want to do it. And he came on the set, he had to come in like around nine in the morning, 10 in the morning, because the first scenes we shot with him for all kinds of logistical reasons, he had the makeup or he's got the plague, you know. And then the other scenes were shot at night so there was a period of about six or seven hours in between, and he just laid there on a bed. In, and I said, uh, "Land, I'll I'll replace you. I'll get somebody else. And he said, no, we've been friends since the early 1970s. I don't want to disappoint you, I, and I want to do this movie. And he did it. But unfortunately, he passed away before it was finished, so um, he never got to see it.
0: Well, it's a great tribute to have him in it.
1: Yeah, and uh, we dedicated the movie to dedic- Yes. And now since then, Robert Axelrod also passed away. He was one of the villagers, and he was also one of the Power Rangers, one of the voices for the, the original Power Rangers. Okay. Played one of the villains in there or something, and um, so he uh, he was in the hospital when we had the premiere, so he never got to see it either. Now you plan on doing another
0: movie like that, like a sequel, follow? Planning. To
1: that? I had a, a vampire movie I wanted to do, which was kind of a combination of Carmilla and Death Wish, you know, but a, mm-hmm. a, a very urban kind of thing with a. I don't want to get into the plot, but we're getting such good reviews and response on the Frankenstein movie, and I have more stories to use. I said, we should just do another Frankenstein movie. So I have a script. It's called Tales of Frankenstein, book two. And I say book two instead of the sequel or something because the stories are all based on published short stories of mine that came out in a book called Tales of Frankenstein. Yes. And I have the script already written. Uh in my mind, even partially cast, but,
0: you know, I got to make some money out <laughs> the first one before I can make another one. Right. It is so hard to get some of these ideas through Hollywood because there's certain expectations on revenue and everything. I mean, it's, it's a business, but there's something that these indie films, these mid-budget films bring to us, a certain joy, a certain happiness of seeing these great stories brought to the screen with a lot of passion and love behind them. You hit it right on the head because... They're not
1: corporate movies. They're not made by a, a company or a bunch of twenty-five year old guys sitting behind it he's sitting at a table who have never heard of Humphrey Bogart before, but they're gonna make a movie. And um, and it's all gonna be special effects and it's gonna bring in it's going to cost millions of dollars and bring in billions of dollars. Um, it's a separate industry really, and they're made by people, some of them, not all of them, uh, some of them are made by people with a lot of love for the genre, and, and a love for making movies, and um, with passion. I like to think of myself as one of those people. I mean, if Tales of Frankenstein doesn't make a dime, the experience of making that movie was such a was so great that it's it all you know. If it makes its money back, that's wonderful. If it, I can make another movie, then that's where the money would go. But there's no cynicism involved, at least. With some of some of us, just some some independent movie makers, B movie makers, just know they're going to be making a piece of junk, and that's they they go into go into it with that attitude, mm-hmm. and you know we just get a bunch of girls to take their tops off, and we're going to make them a, a lot of money. I don't do that. Maybe I did years ago, but I don't anymore. <laughs>
0: Tell me about how much time goes into making one of these films, because you do have, I mean, I did think that the shots were very good, the quality was very good, the acting was very good, and I don't want to spoil anything, because they're all like surprise endings, but I, I do have to say, and I won't spoil it, but the last the last story in there, um, that last scene, I was, like, my son didn't see it, and I was like, he's got to see this. One of the main problems
1: I see in low-budget movies, and people who aren't familiar with you know, the people making those movies uh, don't know what really separates them from the major, major, the real movies, as we call them. Um, one is they put in too much dialogue. They tell you too much. They don't leave enough up to your imagination. In other words, I call them "there they go" lines. A car drives away. Somebody will say, "There they go." <laughs> well, <laughs> you know they're going. Well, you show that. You, you show know, it you, it. you don't have to say that. Look at the how many movies with like a Clint Eastwood movie how much he says without saying anything, you know? And um that's what I try to do. Now in that one you're talking about, mm-hmm. I could have just said, had the, the scientist at the end say, oh my God, what have I done? I have right. and then right. explained it. Yeah. But I don't say that. In fact, I I I'm almost worried, maybe I maybe I should have put more information. There's all little hints of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Things hanging up on walls, and you know, the the, the, the talking about the soil that preserves, you know, all those sort of things. You put those all together, it is all very clear, and uh, it all is solidified in the shot when he looks in
0: the mirror at the end. I love that shot. Oh my God, that was so good.
1: That was. I didn't expect that. That's the thing about the way it looked. Everybody on the set told me it was not going to work, and I said it's going to work. Yeah. We're just going to use some simple practical effects, some of which I use in my old amateur movies when I was a kid, and said, it's going to work. And they all looked at me like, mm, and it worked.
0: See, the thing is, it respects... I mean, you got it. You understood what that meant. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. And that's the thing, it respects the audience intelligence. You don't have to spoon feed <laughs> them. If you pay attention and you love that kind of film, you're going to pick up on it, and you're going to enjoy it all the more because someone's not saying, well, here's what happened, or you have the sidekick or whatever explaining things to the audience because they don't get it sometimes I find that a little bit like duh. And, uh, it, but that it, I'm, I'm telling you, get it. People have to get this and see it. It's really, really good. I look forward to seeing more of that. Um, now today, it's very easy to shoot videos case in point and the technology is there, which is a wonderful thing, but you just can't point and shoot. And there you go. I got something now I, because a lot of people are creating content, but there's things that they have to learn to make good content. It's not always about the money, how much you're spending to make it. You could always throw money at stuff like we talk about big budget films and try to make things, you know, ooh, eye candy and great special effects, but there's more to it to make it something compelling, interesting, and have staying power 10, 20 years from now. To those who are out there trying to make their own content, videos, whatever, what do you think they need to learn to make good content, to make stuff that will actually stick with people and have, stand the test of time.
1: You should have a good story and uh, a lot of a lot of people don't you know and um, good actors that's another thing don't just hire I mean I made this mistake years ago uh, just putting people in because they were friends of mine but then they couldn't act and um, or you get these you know girls that'll take their top off in a movie but they can't act you know uh, so make sure you have good actors and make sure you know something about, you know, the language of, of films, uh, the visual language. You know? When do you do a zoom in? When do you do a, a pan shot? You know, all, those, all these kinds of things. And I kind of learned it as I went along. I went to film school, but I, I learned most of it just doing it, you know, and, um, you know, making sure that you're not... Breaking the the, the one crossing the line as they say so so you get a jump cut or something mm. and uh, see I only I can see the movie in my head when I before I ever even write the script sometimes so I can see how things are going to edit together and what we're going to need is a cutaway and what we're going to need is uh, um, to get from one scene to the next scene I, I've known directors that sit down and they diagram everything. And they put they have arrows pointing at this and they you know. I I don't do any of that. I don't really plan because I I found out the hard way. You can plan and plan and you can have your cinematographer with you on the set. You can figure the day before and you're figuring out all the angles and everything. When you get on the set, everything is different. Props haven't shown up, there's something in the way you can't move, whatever. So I wait until I'm on the set the first, you know, when, when everybody else is setting up and the food is coming in, that's when I figure out what I'm going to shoot. And it all seems to work out. Let's talk about some old comics. You love
0: old comics, too?
1: Uh, I used to have a huge comic book collection. I had first issues of Superman, Batman, all those, all those Golden Age things, and I sold them so I could make movies ah. because I got tired of wasting like 9 and 10 years trying to get investors that just wasted your time and never put up any money. And I said, you know, I don't really care about these comic books anymore. All these stories I can get in reprint books now. And um, and I sold them. And uh, I got hit up big time for taxes because <laughs> they're capital gains, you know, they're collectibles. Yeah. But there was still enough there to make the movies and whatever I couldn't, Get whatever money I couldn't raise on my own, you know, went on the credit cards. But I have nobody to answer to. I have no angry investors calling me up at two in the morning or knocking my door with subpoenas and things. You know, it's uh, it's great to have not have that burden on my back anymore. And uh, either they they're
0: successful and I make the money, or they flop and I don't make the money. But it's... But it's your vision. Yeah. That's the thing I I think happens with a lot of the bigger films is that someone will have an idea and then they'll have someone write it. Then they'll have someone produce it, direct it. And there's all these different people involved. And then, of course, there's the bottom line and there's certain projections and market research done about who this is going to reach and how much we think we can make. And then by the time you get done, what was initially the idea, yeah. it's something completely or different. Or when you're dealing with investors, you know, I'll put in $20,000, but you got to put my girlfriend in as a oh, lead. The, yeah, yeah, catch, yeah. And all those things, you know. and Then you lose control of what yeah, you're trying to do. It's yeah, not your vision. Yeah. But but you don't have, I get the impression, you don't have any regrets about letting those old comics go. I mean, a lot of people go, oh, I wish I still had my old comics. But you wanted to do something that was yours rather than just holding on to somebody else's work. So that was the way to well, do it. Well, I'm a
1: fan of certain old things, you know. Um uh, certain comic book characters, but I'm, I'm, more, I'm more interested in making movies and doing things myself, you know, and I'm still writing comics um, after all these years, um, I'm still writing books, and I'm still writing music, I mean, I'm doing all the things I used to, when I was a little kid, were hobbies, and know, they're all like professions
0: now. Way back, late right, 60s, early 70s, you did an album that Michael Nesmith produced, I started playing rock and roll bands since I was
1: a teenager. Uh, the first one was in 1957 at the St. Andrews Grammar School Christmas show, but um, in the 60s I was in a band called the Penny Arcade and uh, Mike Nesmith of the Monkees was our producer and we recorded a bunch of singles and then we recorded an album and now I mean, nobody knew who we were back then. We played local clubs and Hollywood on the Sunset Strip, places like that. Mike was always looking for the best deal. We were, I mean, we were. We could have gone with a number of record companies, but he thought we could get a better deal. And then the monkeys collapsed, and then he had, he couldn't afford us anymore. And we all split up and went our separate ways. And I went into writing and did a TV commercial, you know, a little acting, a lot, a lot of different things. And... Um, but in the last, let's, within the last decade, people have been discovering us or rediscovering us. And one company, uh, through the efforts of Mike Stacks, who publishes a magazine called Ugly Things, it's about old rock and roll bands, he got us hooked up with Sunday's Music in New York, and they put out our album. They, they put out, first of all, a CD, which has the album on it, plus bonus features, all the alternate takes and things we did before the album. And then they put out a vinyl, can you imagine, a vinyl actual LP, 33 to a third RPM, if everybody out there knows what that is, <laughs> uh, uh, of, of just the album itself. And uh, that was one of the best periods of my life when I, was, when I was in that band.
0: It's amazing you had a chance to work with Michael Nesmith. Yeah, I... oh, he was a
1: very creative guy and a very good musician. Yeah, some of the songs during the monkeys that are on those albums that he wrote, like "Sweet Young Thing." Oh yeah, that's a great, great song. great
0: song. I love that song. And
1: it's so different than the regular, the, 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 the
0: homogenized monkeys stuff yeah. that was coming out. Yeah, movie. but it, it's you can tell it's got his stamp on it, and it's uh, and that's one of the things I liked about the music was there was a lot of variety in it. It was coming from. I think he said one time that it was like all these different athletes that were good at different sports got together and played football, mm. and they, they played a good game. You know, they all, had, they all had their contribution that was a little different, that's what made it special. Back to the comics, and I know you worked in the black and white, eerie, creepy, you know. That's you know, so where I started. first. So my started. first
1: story was for Creepy.
0: My agent at the time was Forrest
1: J. Ackerman, who was who was editing Famous Monsters, of Filmland. Land. Okay. And his publisher was James Warren. And Warren, I guess some of his, I think, writers had left for some reason or other. He was looking for new writers. And because I was new, um i guess warren didn't before he pitched me to warren but since i had never had anything published for it in a comic book uh he wanted me to adapt a story so I, he had me adapt a story by nathaniel hawthorne called the demon in the marsh and that was my first story and then i did another one up based on the oblong box that never did get published and then suddenly there was this vampirella project and um for, he said, you can you know, write some original stories with uh, you know, with, with a sexy women, in a, but in the creepy type format? I said, sure, I'll try, sure. And so I did, and I ended up writing, except for two stories uh, in that issue, the first issue of Vamp- Vampirella.
0: And that's where it all started. And then eventually you started writing for Gold Key. Now, I don't know much about them as a company, but I, I do have some of those old Dr. Specter comics mm-hmm. and you did Dagger too. And who, how did you hook up with Gold Key? Like, who did you work with there? What happened
1: with Gold Key was Boris Karloff, which whose birthday is today, I might add. Um, Boris Karloff died, and Famous Monsters was going to do a special. Uh, oh no, Forey Ackerman was going to do a book for Ace um, Ace Publishing Company, Ace Books, called the Franken-Science Monster, which was about Boris Karloff, kind of a tribute book, and he was trying to come up with all kinds of different topics that we could fill the book up with. And one of them I came up with, I said, well, why don't we do Boris Karloff in the comic books? Because he's, his likeness was drawn into a lot of comics, mm-hmm. but there was also Boris Karloff's Tales of Mystery that Gold Key um, was publishing. So I, uh, Gold Key, which is part of Western Publishing Company, was located in Hollywood. We had a Hollywood uh, office and a New York office. The reason they had one in Hollywood because of their association with Disney and the other studios. So I called them up. I said, "I'm doing this article. Could I come and do some research and ask you some questions?" So I did. But me, I always, when I, I never let an opportunity pass me by. I said, "Here I am in in a comic a com, comic book company's office. I'm not going to let that go." And I said, "Hey, I am also a writer. Could if you are ever looking for a writer?" They so said, "Well." You know we, We're very loyal to our people. We have writers, and we don't want them to uh, not be able to support their family, so we're not going to create any competition for them within the same company, but we'll keep your name on file. And about six months later, I got a call from the editor there. Say said, we, we need a, a writer to write some text stories. Remember the text stories in the comics that they, they had to put in there for get their postage right, right. rates or whatever, Mm -hmm. and so I wrote a few of those, and none of them ever came out, but then um, they said, hey, we're starting a new company, a new comic book title called Mystery Comics Digest, if you'd like to write, and they were basically the creepy and eerie type stories, but with no gore, with no sexy women, you know, they were just kind of cleaned up, you know, and uh, so I wrote some of them, and they loved them, and then... One day, I brought in Dr. Spector as a host character, a new character, who was like Boris Karloff or, you know, Rod Serling introducing the Twilight Zone stories. And, uh, and then they, Dr. Spector kind of took off introducing these stories, and he said, hey, we want to do a Dr. Spector book. I said, great. So that's where that all came from. It just an evolution, one thing leading to another. I worked with DC, Marvel, Charlton, Archie, just about everybody.
0: Marvels that I read back then were The Invaders, The What Ifs, which I know you worked on those. I wrote a bunch of those. Call the Destroyer. Um, And you even had a hand in 3D Man, which Roy Thomas wrote, but you you kind of, in that particular character, was involved in the plotting of the first issue of 3D Man? Yeah,
1: and then I ended up writing some. I I can't remember exactly what that was. There was so much Marvel work at that time. Roy Thomas, whenever he would go on a vacation or, or something, he would farm things off to me. And that's how I, I really started writing. I mean, I, I did some articles, and I, edit, I I was an associate editor of a magazine called Monsters of the, of the Movies that Marvel published, but my first comics work were through Roy Thomas.
0: And how did you meet up with Roy?
1: I was in Chicago on a visit once, uh, after I moved to California, and I grew up in Chicago, and we there was like a group of comic book collectors and things that would get together for these fan groups, and I was trying to rent the Captain Marvel movie serial that Republic made when mm-hmm. I was one of my trips and they couldn't get it, but they gave me and substitute a bunch of other chapters or you know, Zoro rides again and a bunch of things. King of the Rocket Man. and we had this fan thing and Roy Thomas came in for the fan thing and that's where I met Roy and uh, we've been friends ever since.
0: I like the way you make those opportunities, too. I mean, he's your friend, but it also led to something else later on.
1: Opportunities are never lost. They're just passed on to the next person. And a lot of people let opportunities pass them by, you know? And things could happen if they had just gone with it.
0: That's right. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> That's how I got it with the Mike Nesma thing. A friend of mine, was at the, we were in the musicians' union, and a friend of mine saw on the bulletin board a band looking for bass player. And he played the bass too, and um, he said, ah, it's gonna be another, it's, I don't, it's, nothing's gonna happen, why don't you take it? I took it, and uh, I got the gig. And he
0: hated me ever since, because he thought I stole something from him. What other memories do you have of the Marvel office? Because my impression was only what I read in the books, the names in the books, I didn't know people back then. Did you get a chance to go to the offices? Uh, in
1: 1973, When I was already writing for Gold Key and Warren, I went to New York uh, to go to the comic book convention and also to make some business contacts. And um, I was just used to the Gold Key offices, where everybody wore suits and ties, and it was very businesslike. And nobody was a fan there. Nobody loved, really read comics. They never read the competition or anything. It was just a business for them, you know, something to do. And Marvel in DC, except for the older guys like Joe Orlando, who I think still wore ties. It was all young hippie guys, you know, Frank Runner, and everybody had long hair and everything. And that's, um, so it was a whole more relaxed uh, situation.
0: And who did you encounter outside of Roy Thomas at the office? Who else did you know at Marvel at the time? Well,
1: everybody. The, the first time I actually went there was <laughs> before I went to that convention, I'm thinking back now. Uh, It was more like around 1970, two things. I had made an amateur Spider-Man movie, Mm -hmm. so I had a costume for a Spider-Man movie. And um, I wanted wanted a a trip to New York on the dating game television show. So I was in New York, I was hey, I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to meet Stan Lee and see if I can talk him into giving me the rights to (laughs) Spider-Man based on this costume to pitch it as a movie. Thank God, he he explained to me why that wasn't possible. But I went down to, uh, uh, I went to Marvel. I was introduced by uh, an artist friend of mine named Larry Ivey, who was a character in his own right. And I called up Marvel and I said, "Uh, I would like to meet Stan Lee. And I talked to Flo Steinberg, I guess I was on the phone. Mm -hmm. And she says, come on down. And Stan was very gracious. You know, I ended up working for him years later, but I didn't know that at the time. And um, I think Roy, I think Roy was already there on staff, and um, and that's that was my first time actually there, but I wasn't pitching my work as a comic book writer then. I was just trying to get Spider-Man. Stan to give me the rights to Spider-Man, <laughs> and um, uh, but it was a whole different world at Marvel and DC. It was all you know, guys in T-shirts and you know long hair and all that. They were all like rock singers and more. More than the people were at Gold Key, so that was a that was a that was a, a pleasure for me because I was I had long hair and I, I was playing I'd just gotten rid gone through the plenty arcade stage and all that, and uh, but it was at the uh, it was in '73 that I got into Marvel and DC, and Marv Wolfman got me in at Marvel, he uh, assigned me a story that I wrote but it never got published for their Haunt of Horror magazine. Mm-hmm. And the thing with um, DC was um, another one of those opportunity things. Um, Jerry Conway and his girl, then girlfriend, Carla Conway, had a party. And I was up at Marvel meeting everybody. And they said, hey, why, we're having a party tomorrow. Why don't you come? And, and I never turned on a party. Never, never. That's one of my rules of, of life. You meet a
0: lot of people at parties.
1: Yeah. So I was at this party, and everybody was there at Jerry's party and Carla's party was in the comic book business. And I was standing there, and I met Denny O'Neill from DC, and we struck up a conversation, and we got, you know, we got to like each other, and and he said to me, um, you you're you're a writer, well, why don't you come down and see me on Monday morning? Because so, it's the parties on the Saturday, and uh, I said great. So I went down to DC Comics, I I met Denny right when he arrived, like nine in the morning or something, and we went into his office. And on his desk was a stack of manila envelopes about this high. And he said to me, you know what those are? I said, well, I assume they were script submissions that people sent into it. He said, there might be a real masterpiece in here, but I don't have time to read all these. These just, just came in over the weekend, and tomorrow there will be another big stack. He said, gave them to his secretary, send these back. And then he said to me, what did you bring me? And I handed them the scripts, and those are my first sales at DC. And that's how this whole thing works. It's it's so important to establish relationships with people in the business, people that can hire you, and they like you, maybe they'll buy your work. Roy Thomas once told me, he said, a comic book cover will sell that issue, but the contents of it will sell the next issue. And I stopped to realize that. In 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 my own professional life, you get to you get the producer, the publisher, the editor to like you first as a person. Then he looks at your work, you know, and um, you know if you've got a lot of personality problems, you're a real weird character or something. He probably is never going. You might have a masterpiece, but he may it will never might never be seen or read.
0: That is such good advice because today it's very easy just to fire emails very impersonally and just say, hey, can we connect or whatever, and that's not gonna always get you a chance yeah. to meet somebody.
1: and they can be misinterpreted. You can say one have one word in there that you're making a joke and they take it as an insult oh, or yeah. something, or, you know, and you can...
0: You have to tread very carefully. Yeah. When I write stuff, emails, I, I make sure that the emotion comes through, or it might, if even if something might be interpreted as bad, like at work, I'll even put like smiley face, because I don't want something to come off the wrong yeah. way, because it's just too easy. I have a hard time explaining this to my daughter. Hey, she's listening, I'm sure. That, you know, even when you text, make sure the English is clear because it can really confuse the heck out of people what you're trying to say. So yeah. I write, like I write a letter. Yeah. I go and I edit my
1: text messages. I, <laughs> I see, uh, you know, a Facebook post I put on there two years ago. Oh, you shouldn't have had the apostrophe there. And I go and I edit the thing for two years old. And uh, some of the things on Facebook, I have no idea what they're saying. I get
0: text messages. What in the world are they? Yeah, a lot of things are just done from the hip. But yeah. I, I, take a lot of thought because, especially, it's kind of like a limited budget. I have a limited space to yeah. say something, yeah. so I want to make sure it's super clear and it gets to the point and it, it captures somebody's attention.
1: I see these long, long, you know, on Facebook, these messages that you click more and it
0: goes on. Oh, I don't read those no. who's got time. That anybody does. But we're both similar in that we're perfectionists in that way. You know, whatever we've got to work with, we want to get the most out of it. And the trouble is, too now with computers, you know, in the old days when you're, I was working
1: on a typewriter, sometimes on a manual typewriter with the liquid paper, which oh, yeah. Mike, my uh, That's right. His mom wife uh, mother invented. Yep. Um, you would let things go because you just didn't want to retype it again, you know, and then you look at it a year later for the rest of your life. Why didn't I change that one sentence or that one word? Well, now you can do that, but you gotta, there's gotta be a point where you say it's finished that's right. and that's the tough
0: part. Yeah. I've seen things overworked and tweaked and tweaked and, tweaked and then go back and next. And to me, it just starts to, I mean, you have a vision, go with that and then get to a point point say, done, don't keep going back and changing it. Changing. Yeah. I think it, I think it hurts what you initially did. And just like go with it and be satisfied with it and that that all comes up to the good planning and thinking ahead of time what you want rather than revising it and since we're speaking about writing and creating on writing now do you I, I think you generally go about you have an end in the beginning and you kind of work towards the middle is that how you approach well on those? the
1: creep stories um, I got a real system I'll be watching a television show or something you know and somebody will say something in the conversation they'll make a phrase it's a common phrase and I'll think of that common phrase, and I'll put a twist to it, uh, you know, like, remember the Alamo. I said, how about dismember the Alamo, okay? I got a title. Oh, what a great title. <laughs> then I think of an ending. I have no idea what the story is yet. I just think of the last panel, the, the surprise, big shocker. The reveal. And yeah. then, and, and the puns that go with it, that the, the old creep says, you know? Once I got that locked in, then I think of an opening panel, and, um... Then I just sit down and I type, and it comes out to six pages. Or I mean, I, a story It just flows. Um, sometimes it takes me a few days after I think of the title, to come up with the title, to think of the ending. But it all seems, a, it just seems to work. It's a, natural, it's a natural
0: thing. Yeah, and this is what you're doing a lot of now is writing for the creeps. And yeah. that's kind of a, a, a throwback homage to Creepy and Eerie and Vampirella. And they are just, I mean, just some of the titles. You know, if you knew Sushi. Uh, gum, gum that was one of my favorites. Oh, the, the well, you got the story. you
1: got the joke of the title, right? There's a famous old song by Eddie Cantor. If you knew Susie, if you knew Susie, oh, I've heard uh, that. Okay. Yes, yes, that's where that came from. Yes, that's... <laughs> that even goes back further. Uh, Rich Sala, who's the editor, every once in a while sends me a picture of the cover. Can you write a story to go with this cover? Okay, and I. It was like a creature from the Black Lagoon type of monster. Cover. I've done three stories based on covers. Okay. Okay. One was uh, The Sushi Story. Mm-hmm. One was Roseblood, the, because the, the cover, it was a hand holding a globe or something with a demon in it, and it reminded me of that scene in Citizen Kane, the movie, yes. with with the snow globe. And then the last one is just the one issue that just recently came out, um, if it's out even now. it. It's, the, it's kind of a mothman creature. Oh, with that's flying coming out, some, out a couple of weeks Yeah, flying saucers in the back. Yeah. They even had a title, the collector, so they gave me the, the title. So I had to come up with a story about a collector that included people running away from a mothman and three flying saucers in the back. I did it. It took me a few
0: days. But, uh, <laughs> Just having those short stories with that little surprise ending, and you always... I was sure always working like, no, that guy gives me the creeps or something like I that. I always
1: try to put that line in there. There was only one story I didn't put it in because I, uh, I hadn't thought of the, the, doing that yet. And that was uh, Foxy Lady, the one set in the uh, railroad station in Japan with the fox. And I, I probably could have uh, if I thought about it. Um, but it's funny because I started out writing, my comic book career started out with the Warren books, Creepy, Erie mm-hmm. and Vampirella. And now here I am, you know, many, many decades later, um, writing the same kind of stories, and I didn't know if I could. Uh, I was at a comic book convention in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and Rich, uh, Rich Buckler was there, and he, he said—and I'd never met Rich, I was familiar with the work, but we were talking he said, hey, you, why don't you and I team up and write some, do some stories with the creeps? And um, I said, well, I don't know if I could write those kind of stories again. But he introduced me to Rich Sala, uh, who lived in California, not too far from my house, and we talked about it. And I said, well, I'll give it a shot. And then Rich and I were never able to, his idea of stories were a little bit different than mine. And then he passed away, so I never did anything with, with Rich. But he got me back into the, the horror stories, and um, I wrote one—originally uh, was pitching a plot, and then Rich would okay it, and, and then I would write the script. But then one day I wrote one just on spec and he bought it. And every one I've written so far, he's never rejected one. And he's got about a hundred of them stockpiled because I get these ideas for these stories and like, if I don't write the story, they, they haunt me all day and I gotta get a story out of my system and it's better than sitting around watching television. So I sit down and I write the story and he's got them all. He hasn't rejected one yet. Wow,
0: and, and he pairs your stories up with some great artists. Yeah. And I maybe one, well, I'm maybe, really lucky. I get the best artists. No. do. I mean, Benito Gallagher. Now he, I think I said that right. I saw his work before. He was working on a book, a pama, that was, I think was through like a Kickstarter. And it looks something like John Buscema's artwork, mm-hmm. you know, and I was just drawn to it like right away when I saw that. And then I see he's doing your stuff. And I was like, oh my God, like the Dracula stories? Oh, that M- Machiste
1: story he did was fantastic. And I'm hoping... I really went out on a limb to write that because I didn't know if they were going to be interested in a Machiste story. Yeah, And um, so I wrote two more. Uh, One that gets Machiste out of the predicament he's in at the end of this story. Okay, And another one set in the Old West where he becomes a sheriff in a Western town. He fights a werewolf. It was a takeoff on the Lone Ranger. uh, Oh, I, I owe silver. O-W-E. I, oh. owe, I owe silver. And uh, <laughs> that was a fun story to write. But if the readers like it and they write in, he'll take the other two. Okay. But I like doing these stories now where I bring in historical characters. I've got one with Jesse James. I got one. this member of the Alamo has. You know what the Jesse James story is called? Stakes on a train. And it's about Jesse's last railroad train hold up which happens to have a, a vampire's body being taken to a uh, But anyway, uh, I like using stories with, I did one with Joaquin Murrieta, the Mexican bandito. And um, I like doing those, because then it gives me a chance to do some research. I try to get all my historical facts right. In the Dismember in the, uh, the Alamo, we actually have the doctor who, who the actual doctor from the Alamo, who treated the the wounded? We got him in there as a character. Besides Davy Crockett and mm-hmm. Travis and Jim Bowie and all that, um,
0: so I have a good time doing that. That is so cool because that reminds me of one of those great. I guess it's like a B movie, but I I still loved it. Was uh, Billy the Kid versus Dracula? I love that movie. I was movie. on the set of that movie. Are you really?
1: I saw them shoot the scene where Dracula is approaching the the girl who's in bed, and he's telling And the line was. I'm going to make you a vampire. And then Carradine says, wait, vampire! a vampire would never say that. He would say, undead. That's a good like Carradine. Oh, <laughs> I, so um, he—he, uh, um, he, I was there, and uh, I watched him shoot that. What was he like when you met him? Uh, he was sitting out there in the sun of uh, things, in the full Dracula regalia. And I just asked him if he would um, sign a picture, which he did. And then I, I met him. I did the TV show with him once. We were both guests on a local Chicago show. Then I interviewed him at length once, and ended up driving him to the post office. You know, it was, and, and you know, he was um, he was a uh, you know, a typical like John Barrymore type actor. You know, and
0: uh, uh, but but I was glad to meet him because he was one of the classic Dracula's. He was. That's right. In the uh, the House of Dracula and House Frankenstein, he was back there in those. He wore the top hat.
1: Yeah. Top Hat Dracula,
0: yeah, yeah, and that was like a what a '66 movie, The Billy the Kid, and that's about the time you started. Yeah, Billy the Kid was around '66. I love that kind of mashup of horror and western. You oh, we always think of the old castle, but that's what I've always I've been thinking lately. I want to see more western horror. You know. Well, I did a bunch of western creep stories. I want the one that's
1: coming out. Uh, uh, that I I'm also their proofreader. So the okay. one that's coming out in the next issue, I don't think it's the. No, it might be the one with the Mothman on the cover. I can't remember. It's hard to keep track. Scheduling, yeah. But I did a story um, with the Three Musketeers under different names. You know, he's not called uh, Stony. He's called Dusty. He's not called Lullaby. He's called (laughs) Rockaby. He's not called Tucson. He's called Flagstaff. But it's basically the Three Musketeers
0: in a vampire story uh, for the creeps. Now, there's another creepy type, or creeps publication coming up, isn't there? There's one in the works. Yeah, uh, they, He's already talked a little about it, but... Um, yeah, there is a, a, a mascot that's been approved yeah, by the legal team. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you'll be writing in that one, too? You'll have content? Yes, I do. I can't say what right. yet, but yeah. I do. Are you doing any other writing contributions for other horror magazines or anything right now?
1: No, not really. I did one for a guy, and I can't remember the title of it. Uh, another Creature in the Black Lagoon type of story. Uh, I don't know if it's ever going to come out. It was like, a couple of I, uh, I had an Indiegogo campaign running, and we made a deal. I write a story for him if he puts quid pro quo. Oh, I did a story called Quid Pro Quasimodo for the <laughs> Nice. <laughs> I did another one called Casket of Deplorables. That hasn't come out yet. <laughs> a fake noose has.
0: Yes. Yeah, so. Well, the movies it's that are... political com- as I get. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the movies that are coming up, that what you want to do next, that's Frankenstein sequel, do you th- do things like Kickstarters for that or Indiegogos to help with the funding? I've never had any luck with those. No? Never. And I've had about five of them launched.
1: And, um, see, I've got 5,000 Facebook friends. And I figured if every one of them put in one dollar, that's $5,000. Some of which which would be a huge contribution to one of these projects. The, the Frank Tales of Frankenstein on calendar, one of these. All I get are, on Facebook, happy faces, likes, I know. wish you well, good luck, you know, but nobody will put any money in.
0: I I find it hard for social media if people take a lot of action. Like, I do appreciate people actually write to me and say something about what they heard, Uh but no, people just go, like, and I appreciate it a lot, but, you know, listen is also good, you know, so I understand how that can be frustrating. Plus, when you go on to something like an Indiegogo, there's zillions of them, and I think people tend to want more instant gratification. Like if you're making a film, it's going to take a while. I mean, that's that's a lot of work. They want to get their whatever they put money in for. Like, well, whatever. I had
1: something like like the calendar and the picture photo book and all that. You know, they're out. You can and I said get you know put the contribution on. You're not only going to get that. You to get a lot of other stuff with it. All signed. No shipping charges. Um, uh, and it's going to be more expensive when you buy them retail, when you go on Amazon or yeah. somewhere. And it
0: doesn't it doesn't affect anybody. It just. You think maybe it's just the wrong channel to reach the people that would be interested in that. I don't know. Maybe? I have other friends who, you know, raised hundreds of thousands of dollars on those things. I don't know how they do it. I don't know. Maybe conventions might be a better avenue to try oh, conve- to. Okay,
1: conventions. I sell a lot of you know comics and things that I've written. you yeah. you got
0: a lot of comics people there. Yeah, of
1: course, but yeah. Um, and then I usually only get invited to the. Comic book conventions. I, n- I never get invited to the horror film conventions. Really? Never. I'm surprised. I guess they just don't like me, you know, <laughs> for some reason. You know, I'm I'm not liked on the cl- classic horror film board, you know. it's I guess there's just people
0: with different tastes or whatever, you know.
1: Doesn't Rub seem, people the wrong way, some people. I, I
0: guess. It doesn't seem right because you're actually helping to perpetuate and keep those things going. Well, I've done a lot of stuff. I made eight movies. I've written 80 books. A lot of them having to
1: do with... Dracula and Frankenstein and werewolves and things, you know. Uh, written a lot of comic books, television shows, a lot of stuff involving those classic monsters, but, you know, I don't know. Uh, I got invited to a Transformers convention a few weeks ago okay. in, in Virginia, which was nice. Um, even though I couldn't remember anything about this, I wrote a half a dozen Transformers scripts. I couldn't remember who the characters were, what they did, and people, these, people who know every little nuance with, well, why come, uh, you know, Starscream did this? and I couldn't remember who Starscream was and uh, or what the story was about, you know, so that was kind of
0: interesting. Well, I get that with a lot of writers, so unless it's something they just did, when we'd have a discussion, I don't usually get into plots and details about books that they did 10, 20 years ago. I yeah. mean, it's, like, oh, it's old news. And some
1: of these, I don't even remember I did because a lot of the times back like with Gold Key in the early days, we didn't get our names, get a byline, right. and I look, read, and unless I put some kind of an in-joke in the story where I put the name of a friend or something, I don't I, I don't know if I wrote
0: that story. You've done so much. Yeah. yeah. This is the portion of the interview where I kick back with the creator, which we've been doing, but I ask you questions just to learn more about you as a person. It okay. could be related to your work. It doesn't have to be, but it's just kind of fun things to get Nothing to know. Nothing about sex,
1: politics, or no, religion. Okay.
0: None of that. Right. No, 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 no. On all my shows, I never talk about those things. Like this is what's what, left there's nothing left. Well what do you do for rest and relaxation? What work. I mean I I'm happiest
1: when You're happy doing I'm doing it. When I'm working on something. You know, just watching TV is you know or something like that is kind of boring. But I like to I like to be working. I like to even if it's not physically typing those keys, coming up with a story or a plot or a song or something. I love going to parties. And I love every once in a while getting the old guitar out and jamming with somebody, you know, I love that. And um, those are those are pretty much it. I've got animals I deal with, you know, cat, lizards, tortoise. Um, I like going to museums, if they have dinosaur exhibits. You have a museum of your own, don't you, in your, your house, don't you
0: have a big collection of Yeah, my house is museum? like a
1: museum, it really really is. If they go to dinosaurs, Don Klux, you'll you'll see it. Uh, Like 6,000 pages. It'll take you you a week or more to go through it.
0: What is the rarest
1: thing you have in your collection? The rarest thing I have in my collection. On my wall I have a painting of uh, prehistoric life by an artist named Archibald M. Willard that was done about 1853 or 1854. It's, it's, It's the rarest for several reasons. One is the first painting of any kind ever done in North America of any kind of Mesozoic life—dinosaurs, mm-hmm. pterodactyls, that sort of thing. It was done by Archibald M. Willard, who is a—his work is considered national treasures. He did the famous painting—I'm sure you've seen it a million times—The Revolutionary War. Three, three guys, one's carrying a flag, one's playing a, fu- a fife, yep. and one's playing a, playing a drum. And uh, the other is, it's one of his missing paintings, and I have it on my wall. And um, if anybody wants to buy it for a million dollars, I'll sell it. But otherwise, I've been offered 10000 for it. Uh, otherwise, I like it. It's in my dining room hanging up there, taking up a nice space
0: of wall. So you're not going to part with that to uh, fund a movie? No, unless i got a million dollars <laughs> for it. <laughs> then I could make like 10 movies. Do you have any old movie memorabilia that's that was really hard to come by that you have? Because I know you have some posters of old movies. No, I,
1: I never collected posters. I had a... A poster, a one, original one sheet from uh, Ghost of Frankenstein. Mm. And I have one sheets, original one sheets from some of the serials uh, Superman, Captain Marvel, Batman, The Phantom. Nice. And, okay. uh, but I, I never really got in, into that. I, I, collect, I accumulated some things, but I didn't really actively collect them like some people do. Now, thinking back, what was your favorite birthday and why? My favorite birthday was probably when I turned 18 because that's when I took the money I got and I bought that first issue of Superman for $15. And I could have gotten three more the same day just by crossing the street. But everybody, all my family and everybody told me how crazy I was spending $15 on a comic book. And um, and that was was probably in terms of getting something, you know, getting things. But probably... The earliest ones, yes, you know, a lot of my family was still alive and Mm -hmm. all the friends, you know, you had your little friends, they were all,
0: probably all about the same. Speaking of books, hypothetically, if you were stuck on a deserted island, you've probably heard this kind of question before, what's the one book you want to have with you for fun, for pleasure, something you want to read to relax, take your mind off the situation? Gosh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if it would be fiction or non-fiction.
1: I I really don't know. Maybe a dictionary. <laughs> I wouldn't forget the words, uh, my language. <laughs> uh, or maybe a thesaurus, which always sounded to me like a prehistoric animal as a kid. I don't know. Yeah. I, I really don't know. Maybe something I've never read that had a lot of pages, like Moby Dick, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, something mm-hmm. like that.
0: Another hypothetical. Uh, Warren's going to make an action figure of you. What would be your accessory that says something about you? Um... Well, it would be a, it would be me
1: standing by a desk with a either a typewriter or a computer on it, but holding a guitar with a big dinosaur skull next to me. Those would be like the, the extra That's pieces you, you get. Yeah. yeah,
0: okay. What is your beverage of choice when you're resting and relaxing?
1: Well, I really like red wine. Okay. And it's also supposed so it's been good for your heart. And um as far as soft drinks, gosh, I really like an old, uh, there was a drink they sold in the Midwest called the Green River. Mostly sugar, you know, and it was green, but I, I have a lot of nostalgia for that. I don't drink a lot of soft drinks. Um, I like um, lemonade, pink lemonade, iced tea. I drink too much coffee probably, but I like coffee. Yeah,
0: I do too. <laughs> as long as
1: it's strong and not decaf. What's the point? Decaf (laughs) coffee, you can quote me on this,
0: is like having a Xerox copy of a dollar bill. (laughs) Well, they say, you know, drink water or decaffeinated coffee because it's pretty much the same thing. I mean, there's really not much in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, What still gets you excited? When somebody calls me up and say,
1: I'm an editor or a publisher, we have something new we want you to do. And it's something new, especially if it's something I haven't done before, you know, challenging. I go, well, I don't know if I can do this, and then I do it. Like coming back to write the horror comics for, for the creeps. Mm-hmm. Uh, once I got into it, and I did the first story, and the letters were like, this is the best story in the issue, and it was just something I knocked out real fast in a few hours, that was a good good feeling. What keeps you up at night? Well, what keeps me up at night is usually my cat. <laughs> that walking on I pen. have an alarm cat. Unfortunately, you can't set the time, and you can't shut it off. That's the only problem. No. um... I don't. I have a hard time sleeping, so I, it takes me a long time to get to sleep. So just trying to get to sleep keeps me up a, up at night a long time. But I get some of my best ideas when I'm trying to fall asleep, or when I'm driving a car in the freeway and I can't write them down, mm-hmm. or when I'm in bed and I'm too lazy to get up and write them down. But um, and then I, in the morning I forgot what it, what they were, you know. But uh, that those kind of things keep me up. I
0: I don't. You know, I'm not worried about earthquakes or anything like that. Yeah, you're not ruminating. You're just you're, you're having ideas. Yeah, yeah. I've I've said this before on the show. Sometimes I'll have something pop into my head while I'm running. Because like the blood's flowing and everything, and then you get the oxygen. Oh, and there's an idea. So sometimes so I don't forget it. I'll just like hit the record on my phone and like say something into it so I don't forget. Uh-huh. <laughs> or you keep a notepad by your bed in case you wake up and go. No,
1: ah. I don't. Uh, I keep one next to my computer, and I'll be and okay. I'll, be, I'll be watching something, and then it would. You can. Things on pause now. While you're watching, you know, and I get an idea for something or a change I want to make in a script uh, that I've already written, and uh, or something I want to post on Facebook that's going to get some immediate attention that I need. And I was like, I'm watching this. And I said, No, if I do it, if I don't do it now, I'm going to forget it. Then I'll put it on pause and I'll go to the computer and write it in, and I'll come back. Was there a book that you read that changed the way you think? I think one of the books that really changed my way of thinking and influencing me as a writer was, at, was at, the, at the Earth's Core by Edgar Ice Burroughs. Okay. I bought it because there were dinosaurs on the cover, and I read it. I said, well, I'd never read a Burroughs book before. And uh, I said, "Well, this is really something. And then I found out there was a sequel. Then I found there was a sequel to that, and there was more sequels. And that's what uh, influenced a lot of my writing style. I think my writing was influenced by... Three people, Ed Allen
0: Poe, Ed Rice Burroughs, and Stan Lee. The thing about Burroughs, too, is he's like, when he started writing, he would read all these other books out there about adventures. He's like, well, I can do that. And the Burroughs have had continuity between the books. Yeah.
1: Tarzan overlapped in the, the at the core, and, the, and they were all these
0: little subtle things, and that influenced me tremendously. Of course, Stan Lee did the same thing. I was just reading a copy of Fantastic Four over the past week, I think it was like 76, and. They're referring to other issues that the characters like Thor and Spider Man and Daredevil who are in there. Like what was happening in the previous issue that brought them to that issue? Yeah, that continuity. Yeah, that was tied that, in. I love
1: that stuff as a kid.
0: Yeah, and I do that in everything. If you if you, I, I look at everything I've
1: ever written. Even in the things that were owned by other people, like other uh, you know owned by Marvel Comics or whatever. Is all in the same universe. So I have little references in my movies to comic book stories I wrote. They have references to short stories, to novels, and it's all connected. Someday after I assumed room temperature, somebody, some, some guy with no life living in a basement, you know, in a Hawaiian shirt and a computer is going to figure this all, all this stuff out uh-huh. and devote the rest of his life to figuring out all this continuity. I even have continuity from my Gold Key stories to Marvel and DC stories. If anybody reads between the lines... I had one character in Dagar, the girl, his girlfriend, um, rides off and she says, I can't stand this, living with the mercenary anymore. She rides off to the sunset and then she turns up in Kull with amnesia, you know, and then but wearing different clothes. And at the end of her call story arc, she puts on the old clothes that she wore in Degar, you know, I have all these kinds of little things going on, and um, I don't know if anybody ever noticed. A couple of people have noticed, but nobody's noticed all of them. And in my Frankenstein novel series, I have references to things and other things. You know, uh, I have. I made a movie called uh, The Mummy's Kiss: Second Dynasty, mm-hmm. and there's a sign in. It's like at a museum, a sign in for guests are having an opening night of an exhibit, and this hand comes in, wearing a. Black kind of cape, you just see the hand come in and it signs it A. Spector, Ph.D., you know. <laughs> and, and I love doing this stuff. There's stuff to go back and mind, folks. Things yeah. you want to go
0: back and dig and look yeah. for. Yeah,
1: in Dinosaur Valley, because we had a storeroom scene where uh, all the stuff from past expeditions were. And on the wall, there are boxes with, you know, I, I wrote all the expeditions like of old Clyde Beatty
0: movies and Republic serials and things. What was it called? Easter eggs. Now. Easter eggs. That's right. You know what I'd love to see you do someday is a Fantastic Four story. And I'll tell you why. I did one in uh, What If. I would think that'd be the perfect venue if you to do a Fantastic Four because Fantastic Four started out at when they, Marvel was transitioning where Stan had the idea to do a superhero book or he you know, he got the inspiration and was told you should do one. And he figured, what the heck? I'm going to do what I want to do. and But it started out as like a horror book. You know, I mean, they kind, of, they kind of kept it in such a way that this could go with horror because we don't know if this is going to work. So like, to yeah, issues. it looked kind of like those giant monster uh, comics said. Yeah. yeah, Skulls. Yeah. Or Scrolls rather. And, I mean, they didn't wear uniforms yet, so they were just kind of... He was just kind of playing on both sides. That's why I think you could blend in the horror aspects. Yeah, so well. well, I think in Marvel's
1: case, it was, um, they were being distributed by DC That's at the right. time, so they couldn't make it look too much like a superhero.
0: Book. What moment for you was a turning point in your life? Several. Uh, in terms of movie making, um,
1: I think when I saw House of Frankenstein and when I saw The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, because I wanted to show, I was nine years old, I wanted to show that movie in my house and I couldn't do it. I figured the only way to do that is to make it myself. So we had a movie camera in the house, a 16 millimeter movie camera, and uh, I shot my version of it in the backyard. So that was a big thing. When I, that's when the movie bug started, um, you know, because I made a lot of, I made 41 amateur movies altogether, uh, all the genres you can think of. I think when I saw House of Frankenstein, I think when I saw The Wild One with Marlon Brando, that, that got me into motorcycles and things. And my mother, to her dying day, regretted ever taking me to see that movie when I was like 10 years old. Um, Music-wise, I think, I think um, when I saw Elvis Presley on the Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey show, that's before Ed Sullivan, and I saw him up there and all those girls screaming and everything. I was just be, I was just a, becoming a teenager then. I was like 14 years old, 13 years old. I said, "That's what I want." And then also in writing, I think when I read my first Edgar Allan Poe stories in in high school, they were assignments, and I read the uh, Casco Amontillado, and that, you know, inspired me to find more posters, than read all the others, you know, Telltale Heart, Pit and the Pendulum, and all those. So those are like epiphany points for me. Um, never realizing at the time that they would become careers, but they jump-started a lot of my interests, making movies, writing, playing music. Is there anything you know now that you wish you knew when you were younger? Well, I, <laughs> there's so many, so many things I would have done differently. Um, uh, I think I would have tried to get in the movie business at an earlier age, but I got sidetracked in the music, and that took a lot of time. So while I was um, up there on the stage playing Rolling Stone songs and things, you know, and then our own songs in the Penny Arcade, people like Randall Kleiser, you know, they were all making movies already, so. Um, I think I would have done that differently. And my final question is, how do you want to be remembered? I'm not really concerned if I'm remembered at all, actually. But if I would be remembered for certain things, things that I put more work into and more love into, like my Dinosaur Encyclopedia volumes, which are a tremendous amount of work. And um, I take a huge amount of personal satisfaction for having done those, which are like semi-technical. I mean, they take up this much space on a shelf. There's eight volumes in it. I think for this Frankenstein movie, because it was a labor of love, really, um, with Penny Arcade music, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know, uh, maybe for somebody who doesn't get invited to horror film conventions, <laughs> I don't know. Those are the things I'm I, I really most proud of, I guess. A lot of the stuff I did was just... Hacked out, I mean, you know those Saturday morning cartoons mm-hmm. that people say, oh, I, they influenced me as a kid, and I, those are just junk, most of them. And some of them were half hour co- toy commercials. Right. And we were, you know, it, you couldn't do anything really creative or you wouldn't get the next assignment. They wanted everything to be the same every week on uh, those cartoons. So um, I guess
0: those, there's probably a lot of other things if I really thought about it. The things that you made that you just like hacked out because it was part of the job. It's made an impression on people. I mean it hit them at a certain point in their life being young that impressionable age that it just, I guess it just I, stuck with them I liked
1: a lot of junk too when I was a kid that made an impression on me i mean, I, some of my some of my guilty pleasure movies people you know, I, I've got like uh, Three or four guilty pleasures one is Frankenstein 1970 one is the George Raft story Another is showgirls, of all things, and I—I these strange things that have no connection with each other. Um, there's a movie I desperately want to see, and it's apparently lost, that I saw when I was a teenager, called the called Street Fighter, Street Fighter spelled with a hyphen. And it was a movie, one of these juvenile delinquent movies, that came out in 1959, starring Vic Savage, but a teenage punk who gets involved with a mob or something, I can't remember what it was. And at the end, all I remember, the only thing I remember is the last shot where he falls off an oil derrick or something, and they're cut to a close-up, and he goes, and, like, vomits blood. I'd never <laughs> seen anything like that before. And I want to see that movie again, that whole movie. It's probably the worst piece. Of, made by the same guy who made The, the Creeping Terror. Remember the movie? but It was like it was a rug crawling around or something. And I, I'll probably get into about five minutes of it and be bored out of my mind. But... But I really would like to see that movie again. And apparently, there's nothing exists of it anymore. I did that scene in one of my amateur movies. I had, I had a guy who died, and they cut a close up, and I had I had actually milk coming out of his mouth, you know. And uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was I was terribly influenced by things I saw on television movies. The our gang comedies, the little rascals mm-hmm. were tremendously. Influential on me, I was. They would start a detective agency, and I would start a detective agency the next day with my friends on the street. They would turn their wagons and things into locomotives. I do that. It was. They were just. Uh,
0: It's Flash Gordon serials. I would make all those costumes and weapons and things out of cardboard. It's so funny the things that inspire us that people make and they might not think it has that much of an impact, but it does. And the work that you have done, I think has inspired a lot of people. And it has certainly brought about my love for horror and even deepened it even more. So I I look forward to every issue of The Creeps that's coming out with your work in it. And I hope to see more of your film work in the future, more Frankenstein. We want to see more stuff like that. Well,
1: I hope so too. You'll see more movies if these make any money, and you'll see more creeps, certainly, because I've they've got an inventory that's about 100 of them yet. I, you know, they can't print them all in on one issue. But he's, but Rich uh, Salas says they're well-received. The The, uh, the readers like them. And a lot of it has to do with the artists. I'm lucky to get good artists on
0: there. really good artists. Thanks so much for being on Creator Talks today. I had a great time. And that wraps up my interview with Don Glut. The video, as I said, will be coming up in the weeks ahead. I plan to have that out sometime between Christmas and New Year's. A little year-end gift to you. I will be adding in photos of the actors he's speaking about, the movies he's speaking about, and some of his books and comics that he worked on. If you have a chance, you can check it out on my YouTube channel, Creator Talks, where I also post the audio of my interviews. And, of course, they're available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and since the holidays are approaching think about leaving one more gift for me a review on Apple Podcasts just a star rating will be fine you don't have to write anything lengthy your feedback is always appreciated as well you can reach me through social media at pod that's at Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram or directly via email CreatorTalks at gmail.com. now before breaking for the holidays I want to squeeze in another podcast before Christmas Yes, before next week, I have one coming up with Danny Fingeroth. He is the author of The Amazing Story of Stan Lee, A Marvelous Life. Danny started with Marvel back in the late 70s. He was the Spider-Man group editor, also wrote Spider-Man Deadly Foes, Dazzler, was co-creator, and wrote the entire 50-issue run of Dark Hawk. But we're going to be talking Marvel and Stan Lee how Danny got started at Marvel, what it was like working at Marvel, and all about Stan Lee. A Marvelous life. So if you haven't finished your Christmas shopping, check it out online through Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or go to the store. If you wanna get into the full Christmas spirit and brave the crowds, buy it for someone you know that loves comics, or buy it for yourself. I've read it, it's a great read. And after Danny's interview, I might have one more interview during the holiday week for you to listen to before we start 2020, and then we'll kick off the new year. And there's certain people I must have on the show, so I'll be doing things a little differently. I might be doing two or three interviews only per month, but the format of the show will be the same. And hopefully there will be more video interviews I can bring you from Las Vegas, as well as cons on the West Coast. Until next week, keep reading and enjoying those comics. For Creator Talks, this has been Christopher Calloway. Until next time.